When you want to learn how to win, talk to some winners. We'll have multiple expert leagues champions Glenn Colton and Fred Zinke next on Baseball HQ Radio. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a foul. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio, show number 11 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season for the week of March the 31st, and it's opening day this week across both leagues. I'm Patrick Davich, your host, and in addition to multiple Experts League champions Glenn Colton and Fred Zinke, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Matt Beagle. Also, our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about bringing your football friends into fantasy baseball by establishing a simple points head-to-head league. In our regular minor league minute, Rob Gordon looks at Tigers pitching prospect Drew Smiley. And in his master notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about those volatile bullpens. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Our feature guest, Fred Zinke, is a teacher, and there's two teachers at my daughter's school, North Lake Woods Elementary. Tom Johnson and Dave Craig are fantasy players. They listen to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, guys, I don't mean to talk during class, but we got to talk some baseball. And to open our show, as always, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Over in uh, San Francisco, let's start with the Giants. Uh, Freddie Sanchez is still trying to get back to full strength. He separated his shoulder, of course, last June. He really hadn't been able to take full infield practice, so he got a cortisone injection. But looks like he's going to start the year on the DL, and that seems to leave Manny Burris starting at second base, at least to start the season. Is Manny Burris worth picking up or even looking at? Well, you know, Manny Burris, you're going to look at Manny Burris and see last year 11 stolen bases at 137 at-bats. and that, So that's, you know, we're, we're looking at, what, one stolen base every 13 at-bats. That looks pretty darn good. If he gets a full season, what are we talking about, 50 stolen bases? But the thing you look at when you, when you finally look at Manny Burris is the fact that this guy cannot hit the ball hard at all. Um, Batting average last year was 204 in those 137 at bats. Uh, expected batting average 223, uh, 61% ground ball rate, uh, and a a, uh, a slugging percentage 204 batting average slugging percentage of 212. So there's nothing going on when Manny Burris hits the ball. 
Uh, walk rate last year dropped to 4%, so uh, there's not much going on when he's, uh, when he's at the plate either. So if he gets on base, he'll steal some bases, but he's going to kill you in batting average. Can he draw a walk at all, Nick? Well, he already used to be able to. In 2008, he drew uh, had a 9% walk rate. That dropped to 6% in 2009 and down to 4% last year. So his, uh, he's beginning to lose whatever patience he once had. Or maybe it isn't so much him losing patience. Maybe it's a case of the more this guy hangs around, the more pitchers realize, hey, I'll just throw him a fastball right down the middle. He can't do anything with it anyway. Well, that certainly could be the, could be the case, very definitely. In Colorado, we had a lot of expectations that Casey Blake might even be a bounce-back candidate and a potential starter for the Rockies, but now they've released him, and that opens the door for either Chris Nelson or Jordan Pacheco for increased time at third. And, well, while we're waiting for Nolan Arenado, I guess, to get called up from the minors, but do you like either of these guys, especially Pacheco? What do you think? Well, you know, the interesting thing about Pacheco is you certainly don't want him on your roster as a third baseman because the guy, the guy is another one who has very little power. Uh, he uh, he hit two seventy eight though last year at Colorado Springs and then finished the season at two eighty six uh, with the Rockies at eighty four at bats and makes really good contact. Uh, contact rates around eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine percent. Decent patience. In uh, the minors, didn't, didn't want, have much patience once he got to the major leagues. But what he doesn't have is power. Over the past two seasons, he has six homers and 525 at-bats above a high A level uh, and a PX of 51. So this is not the kind of guy you want in your fantasy team fulfilling a corner infield position. On the other hand, if uh, if you can get this guy as a backup catcher, uh, he may not kill you in batting average and in a deep league might actually have some value there. Yeah, I mean, if he he's catcher eligible, so maybe if you roster him at that spot, maybe he's worth a little because he's going to get a few RBIs, maybe a few runs scored, uh, even though he's not really much of a hitter. Right, very definitely, but certainly not someone you want. Uh, he's he's not a traditional third baseman, not going to produce the kind of power you expect out of a corner infield spot, uh, and I think the Rockies will discover that very, very quickly. If they haven't already, I'm sure they are pretty familiar with the, with the concept. Um in Philadelphia, we always talk, Nick, about don't put too much stock in spring training performances for a lot of reasons. The samples are very small. A lot of the action it takes place between major league players and minor league players because late in games there's a lot of shifting around. But, man, Vance Worley, the right-hander in Philadelphia, he's been fantastic this spring. And uh, he was pretty good last year in the last three months especially. So do you think Vance Worley's the kind of guy – like Steve Nickrand of BaseballHQ.com says, time to look at this guy seriously? Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, you're right. We don't put much stock into what's going on in the spring, but if it verifies other kinds of impressions we have, uh, as long as it follows in the same line that we were thinking along anyway, then it's kind of helpful. I mean, uh, this spring in 16 innings pitched a 10.1 dom, uh, 1.1 control, so he's been he's been fantastic. But then if you go back to the last to, to uh, the last three months, of last season, you find a BPV of 82, 137, 88, um, so that you, you really want to take a closer look at Vance Worley. He had a very good year last year. He wound up with a 3.01 ERA, and you kind of tend to dismiss that and say, well, that, that was a fluke, right? Well, maybe not. His hit rate was at 30%. His strand rate was at 78%. Uh, XERA, 3.64. So he really showed some skills last year. I mean, here was a guy that had a, had a BPV of 79 for the season. Um, so... What, what spring training seems to be telling us and what the end of last season seems to be telling us is this guy may not be a fluke. He may be worth uh, kind of sneaking on your roster at the, uh, at the end of a draft. Uh, probably 
earlier than that because of spring training, unfortunately. But uh, you raise an interesting point about uh, ERA versus XERA. He was 301 last year, as you mentioned, and you said 364, somewhere in the mid-360s for his uh, expected ERA. And a lot of owners look at that and go, oh, you know, it's a 364, he's a fluky guy. But you have to stop and think, hey, if he just matched his XERA with his real ERA, 364 is a pretty good ERA, especially for a non-top dollar pitcher. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, if you're, that's the kind of ERA you'll take out of your number four or five starter uh, on a fantasy roster. So, uh, you know, uh, if he matches that XERA, he'll do very well. And we don't know about his track record yet. Maybe he's the kind of guy who's going to consistently uh, outperform his XERA. There are those kind of guys indeed, and uh, of course Philadelphia is a, a good team, maybe not quite the contender they have been in past years because of injuries to Ryan Howard and Chase Utley, but uh, they're going to win a lot of games, and Vance Worley as a starting pitcher, presuming he gets six innings into a game, is going to have a chance to rack up a few wins. Very definitely. So, you know, so, somebody very definitely worth looking at, I think, for your for your roster. And finally, Nick, uh, the Reds signed Ryan Madsen to be their closer. Bad news for them. He's done for the year. He's going to have Tommy John surgery with an ailing elbow. There's a number of possible replacements on the roster, but set-up guy Sean Marshall, who came over in the offseason from Chicago, looks like he's the man. And if, if he is, how do you think he's going to do? You know, Sean Marshall is the only thing wrong with Sean Marshall over the last couple of seasons in terms of being a closer has been that he's left-handed, and there's sometimes a bias against that. But here's a guy who's produced outstanding numbers over the past two seasons. Uh, ERA of 2.65 in 2010, 2.26 uh, a year ago, and XERA is not much worse than that, 2.73, 2.57. So uh, here's a guy who really deserved the, the wonderful ERA that he produced. Uh, Dom rates around 10 uh, excellent control, uh, BPV 144 in 2010, 150 in 2011, uh, certainly closer-worthy and better than a lot of closers already out there. So uh, Sean Marshall should do very well as a closer, thank you. Uh, I don't think the, Red, the Reds will skip a beat if they put him in that role. You mentioned that Sean Marshall is left-handed, which is sometimes viewed as a bit of a problem, but if you look at his splits for his career, his uh, command rate, strikeouts to walks, has been over two for versus left-handed batters and right-handed batters. Slugging percentages slightly higher for right-handers, but still barely over 400. OPS, 700 against right-handed hitters, 660 against left-handed hitters. This guy can get him out from both sides. And it's not like the Reds don't have a history of left-handed closers. We think back to the Nasty Boys, Norm Charlton, Randy Myers, both left-handed. Right, very definitely. And you look at uh, the other thing to look at with Marshall is huge ground ball rates. 52% in 2010, 58% in 2011. Of course, that works well in the Reds' ballpark. Exactly right. You've got to really be cognizant of that when you're playing in a little band box like that. Nick, thanks very much for talking to us about the National League. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time when uh, we'll be past opening day for everyone. Very definitely. It's, it's, it's some exciting things to talk about. All right. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to the show. Actually got to watch some real games, Patrick. Yeah, got, had to get up a little early in the morning to see those games from Japan, but it was fun and picked up a save from Brandon League and a home run from Jonas Cespedes, so uh, my teams are off to a good start at least a little bit. Uh, Matt, last week we talked about Joaquin Soria, who's having some elbow issues. It's now been confirmed he'll miss the year. We talked about Greg Holland at the time as the likeliest inheritor of the saves in the Kansas City bullpen. But now they're saying it's probably much more likely to be Jonathan Broxton. How do we play this? 
Well, Patrick, it's no secret to most of our listeners that Jonathan Broxworth is one of the top closers around for several years with incredible skills. At his peak, his base performance value was 184 in 2009. In 2010, it looked like he had a horrible season, but actually his expected ERA was 350. He had a very high 37% hit rate that uh, masked his skills. He still struck out 10.5 batters per nine innings and had a strikeout-to-walk ratio of 2.6. So Broxton had pretty good skills. It's in the second half of the season he started to struggle, and that's where he uh, got this reputation of being hurt and not being as effective. Last year, 2011, of course, he had uh, the bone spurs in his elbow that were finally taken care of in September. He struggled with arm problems all season. So assuming he's healthy, this is a guy who's got a very proven track record. He's done the job before, and that's probably why Ned Yost is looking to him as the closer in Kansas City. Yeah, it seems to me like kind of a high-risk kind of play given his health issues and the uh, possibility that Greg Holland could step up if Broxton stumbles. So I wouldn't invest a lot of money on this pick, and I wouldn't invest too high of a draft in a straight draft situation. But Jonathan Broxton could turn a profit if you get him at the right price. Over in Toronto, Matt, uh, Adam Lind looks like he's going to start the year not playing because of a bad back. What does that mean for playing time for the other members of the Jays roster? Well, the real benefit of playing time there would be Edwin Encarnacion. He's slated to spend a lot of time as designated hitter. Encarnacion's always been a sleeper in waiting and is slated for DH this year because of his fielding problems. Uh, but he's very streaky, and that costs him at bats. Last year, he didn't have a home run until May 29th, and after that, he had a power index of 150 for the next three months. Then he got hurt, hurt his shoulder there at the end of the year, and faded off. But this guy, to me, is is a Jose Bautista in waiting. I'm not saying he's going to hit 40 home runs this year, but he's got those kind of skills. If he could ever put it together, practice a little more plate patience, get the regular at-bats, and, and get on a hot streak early in the year that it carries him through the season. Encarnacion has the ability to translate to lots of profits. Of course, you shouldn't pay for that because he's never done it before. It's a long shot. But as someone to speculate on later in your draft, this guy has tons of upside. He's always had that power. He's in a great hitter's park, especially for right-handers. And Edwin Encarnacion, one of these years, we all think, is going to break out and do it because he certainly has the skills. He just needs the consistent opportunity and the ability to avoid those long slumps. Which could be easier said than done, but Edwin Encarnacion's a very uh, highly sought-after sleeper in a lot of drafts this year, so much so, Matt, that sometimes it seems he's not really a, a sleeper at all. Uh, if you're looking for power, another place to look might be Ryan Rayburn of the Tigers. He's having a really big spring with the bat. I guess the question is, how likely do you think it is that he can carry that through into the season? Well, Ryan Rayburn's had a great spring, and he's done this before. He's another streaky hitter with a lot of power. His power index has been 130 or higher the last three years, although it has tailed off each of the last three seasons to 130 in 2011. The problem with Rayburn is, again, he's not a great fielder, although he's versatile, but he has a very much a batting average risk. He has a low contact rate that's been falling the last three years to 71% in 2011 because he's a free swinger, always going for the fence. So he's never going to help you much in your batting average normally. Uh, he is much better against right-handed pitchers, but his walk rate is also dropping. He's got lower plate patience from 11% in 2007 all the way down to 5% in 2011. So this guy's all or nothing. He's swinging for the fences, so he's going to hurt your batting average most likely, but uh, he will provide some pop. And again, as he gets on a hot streak, he's going to provide home runs. When he's cold, his glove is not going to keep him in the lineup 
and Jim Leyland's going to find someone else to play out there, Ramon Santiago at second base or someone else. So Rayburn is one of those guys to pick up on a hot streak and be very careful of what he'll do to the rest of your categories besides home runs. In Kansas City, Matt, it looks like, to the surprise of many, Chris Getz, perhaps the weakest hitting regular in all of Major League Baseball, is actually going to start the year as the starting second baseman for the Royals. Johnny Giovatella got sent down. They also have Unieski Betancourt, a terrible player with uh, defensive questions. Getz at least can field the ball and has terrific speed, but he's, other than that, a pretty much a liability. What do you think of Chris Getz as a player, maybe for late in drafts? Well, Getz is exactly the opposite of Ryan Rayburn and Edwin Encarnacion. He offers no power. His power index was 20 in 2011. He's not really a high batting average guy either. His expected batting average has been around 248 the last three years. He does have great contact, though, 88% the last two years. And he keeps the ball on the ground. He knows enough not to put the ball in the air, 54% ground ball rate. And he's got great speed. His speed rating was 146 for 2011, his highest of his career. Stole 21 bases and 24% stolen base opportunities. And that's what Getz is. He's someone who's got speed. He runs a lot when he gets on. When he gets a chance to play, he wants to make an impact. But he's really going to offer little help in any of the other categories. Johnny Giovatella is the long-term answer at second base in Kansas City. So I would expect him to be back before long once he gets hot in AAA. Uh, Getz is a short-term, steals-only play. Well, Matt, one of the big moves of the offseason, of course, you Darvish, the Japanese pitcher, joining the Texas Rangers. But another Japanese pitcher made a fairly important move, Hiroki Kuroda, signing with the New York Yankees as a free agent. How do you like Kuroda? Hiroki Kuroda was on our all-value team in 2011. He's always one of those undersung pitchers, much better skills than most people are aware of. His base performance value has been 91 or higher each of the last three years. Last year, though, he posted a 3.07 ERA. His expected ERA was 353 because he had a very high strand rate, 80%. And that uh, made him look better than he really is. He's not a, a pitcher that's going to post an ERA of 3 regularly. He also had a scare here that his ground ball rate dropped from 51% to 43%. And that resulted in more line drives, or hard hit balls, and more fly balls. Still not bad at 35%, but now he's going into Yankee Stadium. Dodger Stadium suppressed runs by 9% and right-handed home runs by 11%, whereas Yankee Stadium increases runs by 8% and right-handed homers by 17% and left-handed homers 43% higher than average. So if Hiroki Kuroda is going to have a continued growth in his fly ball rate or line drive rate, it's a real problem for someone who's always struggled a little bit. When he gives up the fly balls, they do tend to go out of the park on him. So going to Yankee Stadium is going to be very difficult pitching under that pressure and in that environment. He's got to get back to his ground ball ways. He's always had excellent control, only walking just over two batters per nine innings. And uh, he strikes out about seven batters per nine innings the last couple of years. So his command has always been 3.3 in 2010 and 2011. So he'll probably get some wins because he's going to have a much better offense behind him. But it's going to be a real interesting observation to see how he adjusts to the pressure of New York and that band box of a ballpark to see if he can adjust and maintain his composure. He is a veteran to uh, go back to his ground ball ways to be effective in Yankee Stadium. Another pitcher who changed locations is looking for maybe something of a fresh start. Jason Marquis goes to the Minnesota Twins. Marquis has not been a strong fantasy player the last couple of years. Is there any chance he can turn things around? Jason Marquis is one of those pitchers I don't think I've ever owned in any league. He's not a strikeout pitcher, 
barely reaching five strikeouts per nine innings. He doesn't have good control, normally walking more than three batters per nine innings. So he hasn't posted a command ratio above 1.8 in the last five years. Now, in 2011, it was 1.8, and he did make some strides forward, walking less and striking out more than recent history. He's a ground ball pitcher. His ground ball rate was up to 55%, and it's been 48% or higher most every season. He doesn't let many fly balls, but in target field, it doesn't make much of a difference because target field is such a pitcher's haven that that's where a fly ball pitcher can get away with it. This guy has always been a risk in every sense of the word. He does provide some wins, but his ERA has never been below 4.04. His expected ERA has always been north of 4 as well. So this is a very mediocre pitcher that only in AL-only leagues could you even remotely consider because you have to have somebody to pitch. Uh, he is a ground ball pitcher, but he's not going to help you in ERA, and uh, he's not going to help you in strikeouts. His whip has not been that great. There's really no reason to bet on Jason Marquis. You're better off taking a chance on someone who might break through and put all the skills together, someone who's shown uh, skill sets of having a high strikeout rate but struggling with their walks or having the high fly ball rate that's trying to get under control. You're better off taking a chance with someone like that, Kevin Slowey, for example, rather than someone like Jason Marquis who really offers little upside. Matt, you'll be back a little later in the show with your Market Pulse commentary. What is your topic this week? This week in Market Pulse, we're going to talk about how to get your fantasy football friends into baseball through a very simple league format that someone of any skill level can enjoy. If you make your league simple and easy with immediate gratification, it helps every fantasy owner enjoy their season more. All right, Matt, we'll look forward to that, and we'll talk to you again next week. Look forward to it, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interviews with expert league champions Glenn Colton and Fred Zinke are next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Hoagie Wilson still hoping to win it for New York. Three and two the count. And the pitch by Stanley. And a ground ball. Quickling. It is a fair ball. Gets by Buckner. Down the third night. The Mets will win the ball game. The Mets win. They win. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's our pleasure now to be joined by Glenn Colton, one of the most successful fantasy baseball players around in Experts League especially, and also a guy with an interesting history in the game itself. Glenn, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Glenn, your original league started way back in 1988, which puts you back right around the very founding of the game. And among your charter members was a professional poker player. And before we start talking about fantasy baseball in particular, a lot of people think poker has parallels with auction drafting. And from your experience, was that the case with this fellow? No, it wasn't with uh, with Adam. Or I don't actually think there's that much of a comparison. I think a lot of fantasy players make the mistake of, quote, bluffing or price enforcing, and they end up with players they don't want or or at the risk of maybe having uh, another player spend a dollar or two. I think the games both have, uh, you know, skills you need, uh, ability to analyze data, ability to see trends, things of that nature, ability to do calculations. But I don't think the, the skills at the table are the same. I respect both sets of skills, but I just think they're different. Your league is still going, and now your son's playing in it. That must be pretty neat. It's really fun. I mean, in all honesty, I, I might even consider cutting back from six leagues to five, but certainly wouldn't do that uh, with Bobby in the league. 
it's really fun. And has he played? How'd he do? He's, uh, he's been okay. Um, he, he inherited, it's a keeper league, and he inherited a team that was pretty weak. So it takes a couple of years to, you know, to build up and uh, make some trades for the future and things like that, which he's done nicely and got some good young keepers. Uh, he's also uh, playing in the Labor Mixed League, uh, the inaugural uh, Play It Out Labor Mixed League that was held a week before the ALNNL draft. Um, it made a lot of headlines by picking Ryan Braun a couple of days after his suspension was reversed. So uh, you know which team I'll be rooting for in that league. That's a great play, you know. That's a terrific risk management play because there was a, there, even with a suspension, he was a pretty good player. Two thirds of a season of Ryan Braun's not bad, and then you have all that upside if the suspension was overturned, which was a small odds play, but it paid off. Oh yeah, he's uh, so his team looks uh, looks pretty good. There's a couple of holes in it, but like every other team in an expert's draft. Exactly right. You and your partner, Rick Wolf, are very well known in fantasy drafts for winning three labor titles in the American League. What elements do you think have been consistent in your strategies playing these single-league auctions? Well, a couple of things. We have tremendous preparation. We, we literally sit down and go through every single player uh, in the American League or the National League, depending on which one you're talking about. We debate them, we dissect them, so by the time we get to the draft table, we know exactly how we value them, we know whether they're a target. And we also have gotten to the point where when we budget, almost every draft you will see that we can almost write our team down in advance uh, in its substantial uh, members, so we know what we're going to do and we know what we can do, as opposed to having a pipe dream of saying, boy, I'd love to you know, land Miguel Cabrera at 22. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so would everybody. But a realistic plan that we then execute. The other thing uh, I'd say, Patrick, is we have a certain set of principles that we try to live by, including things like not uh, investing heavily in injury-prone players or players coming back from injury, not investing heavily in you know players who are clearly valuable but still on the downside, making them risky. When we spend big money, we try to make sure it's in a safe, uh, age, non-injury-prone type of player, and that's, that's served us well. So you're, when you go into a draft, you have a very strong idea who you want and for how much in every roster slot. And, how, and following up on that, are you willing to be flexible at the draft if everything goes awry, that some, every guy you want gets overbid, or how flexible do you have to be? Well, we are very willing to be flexible, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about the Tout Wars draft today where it was a rarity where we had a change on the fly. I wouldn't say that where we're at the $1 and $2 players at the end of the draft, we know precisely who we want, but we know there's a group of half a dozen or a dozen that we want to get that player out of. And, you know, let's say, for example, um, in the Labor AL draft, we said we're going to spend big money and we want either Pujols or Cabrera. And it didn't matter to us which one we got to fill the first base slot because we were going to get a, you know, 30 to 40 homer, 300 plus, you know, 100 run, 100 ribby guy. And by having two that we liked, we couldn't really be forced to bid well beyond where we wanted to go when we rostered uh, Cabrera at 40, and we're very happy to do so. But if Cabrera had gone for 44 and, uh, and Pujols goals for 46, do you then say, well, back to the drawing board, or do you, do you, would you have kept bidding even at that higher uh, rate that was beyond where you were comfortable? 
No, we, we would we would zag as 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 my partner Rick Wolf likes to say. Uh, when people were zigging, we would we we would have a plan B. We would then say, well, instead of targeting, um, you know, for example, let's say a Dustin Pedroia at second base, which we didn't do, but just by example, for for thirty, we'd say, okay, now we can go uh, at first base with a with a Hosmer Canuco type. We'll have another ten to fifteen dollars that would be available because of that, and we'll roster Robbie Cano instead. And we'll move a couple of more dollars over to pitcher to make sure that uh, we we roster the ace we want or something like that. Right. So you move the dollars around as you roster the players over or under, take your surplus or your deficit and reapportion it amongst what you have left to get. It, that's exactly right. And there are times where we know that we need a plan B. But I'll tell you, we did uh, you know three auctions together: labor AL, labor NL, and tout wars both last year and this year and of those six auctions only tout al this year was one where we had to really move money around where the plan didn't come to fruition exactly as we had predicted and we'll talk about that in a few minutes but what strategy would you use if it's any different if you were playing mixed leagues do you go a little heavier stars and scrubs as a lot of people advise well i mean it depends on how deep your mixed league is if you're talking about a 12 team mixed league or Yes, because there's always talent uh, on the waiver wire. But a 15 or 18 team mixed league, you're starting to get back to the, the level of the single leagues, and then the strategy really isn't that much different. Other than all things being equal, I prefer a National League pitcher and an American League hitter. Uh, a National League pitcher should get another 20, 25 strikeouts just from facing the opposing pitcher uh, twice through the lineup right. every time out. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. It's Patrick David here with Glenn Colt. And Glenn, you're a lawyer and a former federal prosecutor. I wonder how does your legal background, that experience, help you play fantasy baseball? Well, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a trial lawyer by first trade and training, and it, that requires planning. It requires the ability to think on your feet, uh, and it requires the, the ability to do things quickly. So I think all of those things help us at the draft table especially toward the end of the draft. You know, in a trial, you have to jump up, say, objection right away before the witness gives an answer you don't want the jury to hear. Well, down at the end of the game, end, end game of the draft, somebody calls out a player you want at one. If you're earlier in there at two, you save yourself a dollar than having to say three. So the quickness of reactivity, which is necessary in the courtroom, also helps in the end game of the draft. Your legal and fantasy sports careers very famously intertwined when you represented the Fantasy Sports Trade Association in a legal case over the right to use player names in fantasy sports games. I guess Major League Baseball wanted to keep those names for itself, for its own purposes. Can you tell us briefly about that case, uh, what the issues were, and why it was so important to the fantasy sports universe? Well, sure. Uh, What ended up happening a few years back is the, the Major League Baseball Players Association had for a long time, taken the position that they that fantasy companies have to pay a, a license fee to use player names in their games, uh, a position that the fantasy industry disagreed with, but some paid for the sake of, uh, you know, just getting along or getting uh, other benefits from the Players Association. Then Major League Baseball Advanced Media purchased the rights to, to the player names from the players and said to the fantasy sports companies, look, we're not even going to license most of you. We're going to shut you down. 
and we're going to try to, in essence, not their words, create a monopoly and control this business. It would have been terrible for the fantasy sports industry, would have put a lot of companies out of business, and for the player and consumer, it would have limited innovation, limited competition, and limited quality. So eventually there was a, a legal challenge uh, brought to baseball's uh, position by uh, CBC or CDM Sports and Charlie Wiegert. The case was uh, litigated in St. Louis, uh, first in the district court and then in the Court of Appeals, and the trade association hired me and, and my firm at the time to really bring the industry-wide issues and the consumer issues to the attention of the court. And thankfully, the courts got it right, in my opinion, and said that baseball is, you know, Americana, that people have a First Amendment right to congregate, whether it be in person, on the Internet, exchange ideas and information, and that the players were not being harmed in any way by the use of their names in fantasy sports. So that was a few years ago. There hasn't been uh, any more challenges, thankfully, and the fantasy industry and the popularity uh, of the game and the pastime have, uh, have been very successful since then. Of course, Major League Baseball, no strangers to monopoly and uh, eliminating competition, uh, quite famously with their exemption from the antitrust laws. But, Glenn, let's turn back to the Tout Wars draft. It was in New York last weekend. You and your partner, Rick Wolf, drafted in the American League part of the draft. Overall, how did you think the auction went for you guys this year? I think we did well. Uh, I think, like, every year there's a few holes we'll have to fill in. We'll have to play hard during the course of the season. But this was a really odd draft where... Uh, the prices really went, um, you know, frankly, all over the place. And we had to do a little zigging and zagging. We were very surprised by the prices that, for example, B.J. Upton got bid up much higher than anybody would have expected by HQ's own Ron Chandler, which, you know, somebody I respect just tremendously uh, in the space. And the second baseman that we had targeted, Kinsler, and Pedroia went well into the, into the 30s, and we thought we could roster one of them for 30. So we started to move a bunch of money around. Uh, but in the end of the day, I like the team. I like it a lot. Who, who are your top three or four players, the ones you really like for value? Lo- uh, you got to love King Felix at 25. I mean, he's going to pitch 220, 230 innings. He's going to give you the 200-plus, you know, probably 220, 230 strikeouts and will do what you want him to do in the ratio categories. Uh, I actually like Josh Beckett at 17. I think people think it's a little high, but he really is one of the top pitchers in the game. And if you, people say he, had, he was lucky last year, there were you know, all these types of statistics that one would look at, but at the end of the day, he was throwing hard, his curveball was nasty, he's on a team that's going to score a lot of runs and, and win a lot of games much as I hate to say that as a Yankee fan, it's true. So I really like uh, that one-two punch there. Uh, and I like the young players we have, even though we paid a good chunk of money for them. You know, Yvonne Longoria, Howie Kendrick, Curtis Granderson, Adam Jones, Austin Jackson, Billy Butler, all these guys are, you know, 30 or less, basically, and in their prime, and they should flourish this year. Yeah, coming into that 26 to 30 age range is exactly where you want to be. Uh, did you have anything go wrong 
did, is there anything you look back on and say, damn, I wish we'd have done something different there? Yeah, we should have gone to 23 on Dan Heron. <laughs> Uh, I, I love Dan Heron. He's one of the most consistent pitchers in the game. Uh, I'm knocking on wood so I don't jinx, jinx him. I have him in Labor AL. Uh, and just, it's a pleasure to watch him pitch. Um, and really, we, we were surprised that the bidding didn't keep going. We had just rostered Beckett at 17 and didn't have room for yet a third big money pitcher. But it's one of those situations where, uh, I was just surprised that the bidding stopped. And last year that happened in Labor AL on Justin Verlander, and I think everybody listening, Patrick, will know how that turned out. Amen to that. Yeah, no kidding. This is Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton. Glenn, your success in fantasy baseball is somewhat unusual in that you have one of the very few partnerships at the expert level in drafts. Of course, lots of our listeners have partners, or maybe they don't, because they can't figure out how do you manage a partnership. So uh, you've had tremendous success. You've got three labor titles as partners. What are the important factors in working successfully in this partnership kind of way? Well, it's a few things. One of the things that we talked about briefly at the, at the top was uh, the preparation. We've gone over every player. We've debated the value. So I typically handle the, the bidding and the auction, and I know exactly where the team values the player. So I don't need to have conversation. We've already talked about it. I know, you know where we're willing to go for particular players. We also have a hardcore plan that we've already agreed upon, so we know what we want to do. And... The other thing is, I think, and I think is really important, is there's no, quote, I in team, if you will, and, and, and no accusation. So if we got it wrong, I got it wrong one week, Rick got it wrong the next week, it, it's forgotten and moved forward. So we don't really spend a lot of time rehashing the past, which I think uh, all teams, whether they be business teams or even relationships, where you get into squabbling and fights is, you know, the accusations, but you did this and you did that. We don't have any of that. We simply prepare, we move forward, and we stick to the, the principles. And, and we try to keep each other honest on the principles. We have a phrase, uh, you know, never, ever leave your wingman, which comes, of course, uh, you know, from the Tom Cruise and Anthony Edwards Top Gun scenes. And so if one of us wants to bid up a player, injury-prone player, older player, the other one says, wingman, and that's the end of it. We, we stay honest to the, to the plan, and, and we've been successful at it, and hopefully have a little more success this year. So do you guys divide the labor? You do the pitchers this year, I'll do the hitters, or do you both do everything and then use both of your independent work to combine into a, a synthesis work? It's something where we both do the homework, and then we synthesize it uh, together. Um, it, it, we don't rely on one to do the pitching or hitting or one to do the younger players or anything like that. During the season, which obviously is a long season, um, we will sometimes divide the labor on, okay, you do the moves this week, or you do the first draft of the moves this week, something like that. Or maybe, all right, I'll handle labor and you handle um, tout in the FSTA expert league, something like that, because management during the course of the year is, is a lot of work, and that's where there's a little bit more of a division of labor. That makes a lot of sense. At the draft, I found uh, this was my first Tout Wars, and I found the pace was a lot faster than most home leagues are. The uh, the speed at which players are brought out, the speed of the auction, really forces you to make snap decisions. And that seems like, in uh, sort of in the abstract, would be one of the most difficult parts of managing a partnership where there's no time really to discuss. So, how do you make 
quick decisions if you disagree on a player, or do you just not disagree because you've worked so hard at not disagreeing? Almost invariably, we don't disagree because we've already had it out over a player, right? And we certainly disagree, you know, in the prep sessions. But once we come to, okay, this is where we're valuing a player, then we know now the, the sort of $1, $2 more or less judgments are largely mine because I'm calling out the numbers. But we have some hand signals uh, that Rick will give, and um, I'll understand that that means, no, I really want you to go one more. And I'll do it. We have a lot of listeners drafting this weekend. Of course, I think this is the most active weekend for uh, most fantasy drafts. And we always ask our experts when they come on Baseball HQ Radio, Glenn, for a sleeper or two. So give us a sleeper or two. I think Delman Young is, is the, the perfect post-hype sleeper, if you will. Uh, here's a guy, and I don't know precisely, but 25, 26 years old, who made the majors at a very young age, 20 or 21, has had real success in the major leagues, and just had a little bit of a down year in the first four months last year. He was a number one pick overall. He's in a loaded lineup, and he's going in, I think, the high teens to low 20s and could easily be, if things uh, fall right, a $30 player. So I like Delman Young uh, a lot. And on the lower end of the, of the price scale, I take a look at Sean Rodriguez. He's one of these power speed guys, again, post-hype sleeper, who the Tampa Bay Rays really almost have no choice but to install him at shortstop and play him every day, and I think he'll thrive in that role. Will he hit 300? No. But could he easily be a 2020 guy for, for 3 to $5 in some drafts? He could, so I'm watching S-Rod as well. Good tips. Uh, I have to ask, uh, Glenn, I was looking at your rosters from your various expert drafts. You drafted Victor Martinez at FSTA. I think days before he was out for the year with a knee injury. Then you drafted Soria at labor, and now he's done for the year. Uh, have you got anybody else you're worried about at this point? You know, frankly, not really. I mean, we drafted Victor Martinez in January. Uh, the next day he was out for the season in a training uh, issue. I mean, where else can you get a great catcher who's not going to catch it and be at the risk of getting hurt? So that was just bad luck, but sometimes luck goes both ways, because in the 29th or 30th round of FSTA, we took Brett Myers in January as a sort of C-grade starter, and all of a sudden, you know, we've got probably 30 saves on the last round, or the second to last round. So what goes around comes around, and, and with respect to Soria, I mean, there was never a reason to think uh, an injury problem. It's not like picking a Brian Wilson who had serious elbow issues and didn't get surgery where you sort of know the risk you're taking. Um, but funny story, uh, Rick sent me an email saying, uh, you know, ugh, about Soria, and then five minutes later sent me an email saying, wait, we have Broxton too. <laughs> so I think Broxton gets that job. I think he'll be fine in that space. He won't, he won't save 40 games, but uh, I don't think we'll get hurt that badly with that. And we'll have $17 of extra fab to play around with and try to find some talent. Exactly. You've got to take your lemons and make lemonade. Uh, you and Rick have been affiliated in the past with rotoworld.com. You wrote a really interesting column. Are you repeating that again this year? What are you guys doing at the site? Well, I will be uh, you know, repeating the week that was column uh, on the weekends. Rick has actually moved on from NBC RotoWorld. He's uh, formed a company called uh, Full Moon Sports Solutions, and he's out there basically helping all kinds of different fantasy sports and technology companies 
and you know he really is one of the the rarest guys in the business because you have a lot of people out there who can program. You have a lot of people out there who can play expert leagues, and a lot of guys out there who are true businessmen. But he's probably the only one in the business who can do all three. So he should be very successful in this new venture, and of course, uh, I'm rooting for him. Well, I'm sure everybody's going to root for him. He is a really nice guy. I had a chance to talk to him briefly at Tout Wars as well. And I'd love to have you back during the year to talk about managing your team. It'll be my pleasure. And a thank you to Glenn Colton with Rick Wolf, his partner, a three-time labor champion. Now let's turn to another champion working on his own. The defending champion of the Tout Wars Mixed League is Fred Zinke. Fred, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. No problem. Glad to be here. Fred, uh, before we start talking about Tout Wars in particular, in a mixed league auction, what is your general strategy? Oh, in a mixed league, you can go in so many different directions because the player pool is deeper. So I'm more inclined to let the table decide my strategy. I'll be pretty flexible when we start, and you know, if I if I feel like I can get a lot of elite players for a good price, then I'll go in that direction. If I feel like those guys are being bid up to the point where I don't think they're valuable anymore, and I'll then I'll kind of fill my team with middle tier players. But there's so many ways you can go in a mixed league auction that I try not to have one particular plan before I hit the table. Do you think it would be any different for you, Fred, if you were playing in a regular home league with your buddies versus playing in an experts league? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in an experts league, I have enough you know, respect for the competition to think that I'm probably not going to get a lot of uh, you know, $10 players for $2 or $5 players for $1. So in a home league, I'd probably be more inclined to really go after those big names and trust myself that I could find some good bargains later on the waiver wire. But in an experts league, it's hard to sneak a lot of things through. So I'm probably more likely to respect that fact and be a little more cautious with my big bids. You make a good point about the uh, about the free agent wire or the waiver wire, depending on how your league is structured. But in a mixed format like Tout Wars, which is 15 teams, when the draft is over, there's an awful lot of pitchers left over and an awful lot of outfielders left over that you theoretically are going to be able to dip into those pools in particular to replace underperformers or hurt guys. Does that color your opinions about how you want to allocate your money, outfielders and starting pitchers maybe a little less, and infielders and catchers maybe a little more because of the availability of replacements? A little bit, although I find Tetworth is unique because of the unlimited DL spots. So the picture that you get of your league in the end of March or early April, as far as depth goes, is a little different than what it usually looks like by July because typically on your bench in Towers you have four people. But by the middle of the season, most people, when you include the DL players on their bench, have six or seven people. So so you've basically taken, you know, say the top 20, 30, 40 guys who are on waivers at the start of the season, they're all now on rosters being used by the middle of the season. So I found last year there's a lot of intriguing guys on waivers in April. By the middle of the season, it's harder to find someone who's getting consistent playing time and actually doing something with it. How strongly do you stay with the strategy? Even at the start, you said you're flexible, letting the table kind of dictate how you're pursuing things. But how ready are you to zig when everybody else is zagging at the table, and how do you do that? Yeah, I usually have kind of a... For each player, I have a limit of how much I'm willing to spend on them, and I'm going to pretty much stick to those limits, and that's why I say I kind of let the table dictate what kind of team I have. I'm going to stick to those limits. I've done, done the math to know that somewhere in the auction I'm going to end up with players. If I stick to those limits, there's no way, you know, mathematically all these players can be bid up over the point where I want them. I mean, you do get a, an auction's a great mental battle with yourself. I mean, the worst fear at an auction would be to save all your money and never use it, so, um, because you can't take it with you, so... 
So if I if I do start seeing all the good players disappearing and I don't have any of them, then I will branch off my list a little bit to secure the services of of a couple really good hitters or really good pitchers. Uh, but overall, I'm I, I'm going to just kind of let things flow and try to pick up a few guys from kind of each level, a couple thirty dollar guys, a couple twenty dollar guys, some you know some guys in the teens and some lower price guys. It, usually, it, it's worked out okay. If it were a single league format, Fred, how would you change your strategy? In a single league for an auction, I would probably be a little more hesitant to spend the forty dollars plus on the really good players because when you get down near the one dollar players in a single league, you're looking at guys who don't play. So, and you know, a guy who's going you're gonna open up the box score and say, "Oh, he didn't even play yesterday," or he only played twice a week. And when you get into those guys and you're not racking up at bats, it's really hard to stay afloat in those cumulative categories. So I think I'd be wary of spending a lot of money on a lot of here's. I really probably in a single league try to spread my money around. And now that being said, uh, you know, if the table was dictating that those weren't good values anymore, if your if your Jose Batistas were only going for a few dollars more, you know, than your uh, Brett Laurie's or something like that, then I'll then I'll go ahead and take Batista. But I think I'd spread it out a little bit more in a single league. And Fred, you mentioned uh, when you said the kind of players that you're looking at, you started by saying the $30 player and then you went down from there and you didn't even mention $40 players. When you, when you go into a draft like Tout Wars, are forty dollar players the Pujolses and the and the Prince Fielders and those guys? Are they just out of range for you? Uh, no, I, I no, I'll consider those. And this year, I did take Joey Votto for thirty nine dollars, so he's basically a forty dollar player. Uh, I wouldn't go much higher than forty. Um, I I kind of choked on Matt Kemp this year. He went for forty. I thought afterwards maybe I should have gone to forty one. I think he's a good buy at forty one. I don't think I would go in the forty five range on a player. Um, but I am well aware that, you know, going 40, getting the $40, the $39 Joey Votto, as opposed to a, a $30 or 31, I think was Ian Kinsler this year, you know, that is, those $8 can be really well invested on another player, uh, had I gone in the other direction. That's an interesting point about uh, the $39 Votto versus, say, a $45 Pujols. I paid 45 for Pujols and glad to have him at Tout Wars, but in retrospect, the extra six dollars could really come in to be very important later on in the draft. Yeah, I think you know. You, I think almost anyone would say they'd rather have Pujols than Joey Votto. But then when you start putting it in a two for two kind of trade, and then you say, you know, would you rather have Pujols in this one or two dollar outfielder or Votto in this six or seven or eight dollar outfielder? Then it starts to become uh, maybe a more even deal, or maybe even better on the Votto side of things. And then you also you also look at your own preferences, and just having the money later on creates the freedom. So maybe it's Votto and a seven dollar outfielder, but maybe that seven dollar outfielder that that you got on your list was worth ten dollars, and you happen to get them for seven. So now to you, it's Votto and a ten dollar outfielder. It's hard to sneak through the one dollar players sometimes because you know they're like when you get a one dollar player you're really getting someone that nobody else wanted at all unless it's you know the last couple picks of the entire auction so it's uh it's nice to have a little bit of flexibility late in the auction with your money you're listening to baseball hq radio i'm patrick davitt with fred zinke the reigning champion of tout wars mixed and fred let's talk about the draft that was held last weekend in new york overall you've talked about a couple of guys that you picked up how did you think your auction went I thought it was pretty good. Um, last year, I felt like I got burned a little bit by not having enough money at the end. Ended up taking some guys, I think it took Tyler Colvin and uh, Pennington from the A's, some guys who really didn't give me a return at all. So I tried to save a little bit more money for the end game this time, and that allowed me to get 
some Josh Willinghams and Gavin Floyds and Vance Worley, some guys I, I kind of like for this season at in the two to five dollar price range. I thought that was uh, was pretty good. Uh, I mentioned I took Votto. I'm not sure if that'll work out well or not, but I but I really like Votto. Um, I got Josh Hamilton for twenty four dollars. That was one I was really happy with. I I'm a big Josh Hamilton believer for this year. My pitching staff not bad. Um, I think I have some work to do there. That being said, I think. When you, if you have too much security in your pitching staff, it probably means your hitting isn't good enough. And as we know, usually it's it's easier to mess around with your pitching staff during the season, either out of necessity or desire, than it is to find really good hitters on the waiver wire. So overall, I was pretty happy. Uh, I spent a little more on catching than I wanted to. I spent a lot of money on catching last year, and it didn't work well. I was going to try to spend a lot less on catching this year. In the end, I took Matt Wieters and Miguel Montero, and it cost me $35. I really like those players, but I know there's a lot of risk in picking catchers, so I'm going to kind of cross my fingers on those guys to stay healthy this season. I was surprised how well you did for pitching, given the relatively low amounts you paid. $19 for Dan Heron looks like a heck of a bargain. Matt Moore at 14 I mean, a highly touted guy with 10 major league innings, maybe a bit of a risk. Uh, Jason Mott for only 12 Annabelle Sanchez for only 7 These are good buys. Were you surprised as I was at the low price of pitching this year? Yeah, it was, it's, uh, it was pretty similar. I looked at last year's auction uh, prices and the year before. I tend to use those a lot uh, in my preparations because I find things in a 15-team league, say, pretty consistent from year to year. The pitching was pretty consistent from the year before in that the prices are probably a little low all the way down from Roy Halladay being about 25 or $26 for, you know, arguably the best pitcher in baseball, all the way down. So you can save some money, I find, in the 15-team auctions for pitching. Uh, but, yeah, I was pretty happy. I, I planned on spending about $80, and I ended up spending a little less than that and was able to flip some of that money over to my hitting. But afterwards... When I sat down, you know, when I was back home and really went through my projections for the pitchers, if pitching, my pitching works out like I think it will, then I should be fine. And hopefully if I can find some pitchers on the waiver wire during the season to fill in, uh, then I think it should go pretty well. What did you think was your best buy or the best thing that happened for you at the auction? I thought, uh, well, Hamilton I already mentioned, I thought at $24 he was a really good buy. I think he's one of the, I mean, he would be in, I think, anyone's top ten list for to win AL MVP going into a season. If he can stay healthy, he's as talented as just about any hitter in baseball. So I felt like him being 15 or $20 less than the, than the top hitters was a good deal. I really liked Josh Beckett at $9. I think single-digit bid on a pitcher who, again, this is a guy who at his best can have can compete for a Cy Young Award, you know, he did his disappointment last year. I think he's going to be highly motivated, and as will his whole team, uh, to prove themselves this year. Those were a couple of, uh, of my favorite ones. I thought Josh Willingham for a couple bucks late in the auction was a good one. I mean, there's someone who can hit 20 homers if he can stay healthy, and you can replace him pretty easily in a mixed league. He usually hits the DL once a season, but, but he should get in his 450 or so at-bats. So those were some of my favorite ones. Even some of the ones I liked, though, end up being ones where, I got Kelly Johnson for $8. At that time, I could afford it. It was late in the auction, and he was my highest-ranked middle infielder left. And had I not got him, I would have had to drop down a few dollars on my projection list for the next best guy. So while Kelly Johnson, I feel like I paid fair market value for him. Uh, at that particular time, he really fit a need. And when I threw, when I threw the $8 bid on him, uh, being able to secure his services was very important for me. Not something that the other rest of the table knew, but on my list, he was the highest-ranked guy left at a position I still didn't have a second baseman. What was the worst thing that happened to you? Did, you? did you do anything that, looking back now, you wish you hadn't have done? I sometimes I worry a little bit about the Matt Moore when I when I look back on it. I got him for fourteen dollars. 
I don't consider myself a big Matt Moore guy heading into this year, and I didn't think I would have him on any teams. I, I really respect his talent. Uh, but I felt like in all my leagues there'd be someone who was going to really predict an amazing rookie season from him, and they would bid more than that. Strasburg went for, I think, 17. I thought Matt Moore would get up more in that range. My max bid on him was kind of, was about $14. So when I went in at, when I went in the bidding at 14, I actually fully expected someone else to say 15 and it to go to 15 in maybe 16 or 17. I was a little surprised about him and, I think Matt Moore could do great this year. The only reason he worries me is obviously the the huge inexperience at the major league level, and that kind of locked me into him as my second starter. Once I had spent fourteen dollars on him, I probably wasn't going to spend seventeen or eighteen on a, on another pitcher. And maybe someone in the Ian Kennedy or Madison Bumgarner, they went in the seventeen eighteen dollar range. I maybe would have been if I could do it over again. Maybe willing to throw a few more bucks on what I paid for Matt Moore to get one of those guys instead, and just take that money from one of my lower starters. But hopefully more will work out. He certainly, he certainly has great upside. Do you use a first starter, second starter, third starter model uh, very similar to what a major league team would use? Not exactly. I mean, I, I plan on spending, you know, in the range of 50 to $55 on my rotation. And if I, if I, I would like to get one, I would like to get one or two aces. Um, if, if the prices don't work out though, and I don't really like the prices on the aces, then I'm willing to, maybe instead of having one or two aces to have three more number two starter type guys. I really like to have starters that I believe are reliable pitchers. I think it's a really frustrating thing during the season to have to put a guy in your weekly lineup where you really think, oh, I don't even, I don't even want to follow baseball that. I don't want to know how this guy's pitching. I don't even want to check the box for the next morning. I hope this, I just going to cross my fingers on this one. So I like to stay away from those guys who really scare me as best I can and uh, the top of my rotation doesn't worry me so much as having the, the Anibal Sanchez, the Vance Worley, who I'm, I'm a fan of, the uh, Gavin Floyd, who I think is a, a respectable starting pitcher. Those guys, to me, are really valuable because they keep you from having to throw you know, a Dustin McGowan out there in April, and who knows what we're going to get from him, someone like that, or Brett Cecil, who really struggled last year. I really don't want to get into those pitchers. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Fred Zinke, defending Tout Wars Mixed League champion. And Fred, do you make your own stats projections up, your own value projections up, or do you just rely on websites like most people? No, I make my own. Uh, to me, that's, that's maybe my favorite thing, or definitely one of my favorite things about playing fantasy baseball is that wintertime, you know, off-season time when you can really reflect on everything and, you know, get your, get your resources out, your books or your websites, and start doing your own projections. And I think I think doing your projections is vitally important if you're going to compete in tough leagues because once you do your own projections and then you go over them and over them, you really know each player well. And, you know, it, as you know, it's hard to say that this guy's a, going to hit 27 home runs. Well, he's, not, he's probably not going to hit 27 home runs. He's going to hit 25 or he's going to hit 30 or he could hit 27. Who knows? But when you do your own projections, you really know why you projected a guy to hit 27 home runs, what, what, he, what he did in previous years, what underlying stats you saw, where you think he's headed. I find when you do your own projections, you know the players well, and then when you're really under fire in a draft or an auction, it, that, that information is just second nature. It's just in there for you. I, don't, I think if, you're, if you use someone else's projections, then you tend to doubt yourself a lot more when you're saying a name on draft day. I also noticed you were one of maybe four owners at the table at Tout Mixed out of 15 who didn't use a computer and in fact from the look of it you didn't even appear to be that worried about how other owners teams were shaping up or how much money they were spending maybe even how much they had left except once in a while they would announce it why do you take this minimalist approach i think in an auction 
you know, your mind is going to be very busy. Because of the freedom of an auction is great. At the same time, it's very challenging for your mind to really keep an eye on, you know, how much have you spent? How much do you have left? How does that slot into how many positions you have left? And I think maybe I'm just not the smartest guy at the table, but I think when you start trying to keep track of what everyone else is doing, that's wasted time where your mind's thinking about everyone else and not thinking of your own team. I like to stay focused on my own team and, and shaping my own roster. And I think there's just an information overload that can come into play in an auction where you're checking stats that you've projected for guys and you're checking what other people have. What other people have left or don't have left for money, I find to me rarely makes a difference. Maybe if they only have a dollar left per player or a couple dollars left per player, that makes a difference. But overall, if you think, well, this guy's not going to bid bid this player up any higher, he doesn't have a lot of money left, and then he goes ahead and bids the player up higher anyways because he's going to squeeze them in somehow, you can't turn around and say to the guy, hey, this isn't a good idea for you, you don't have a lot of money left. So, I mean, you can't tell other people what to do, so I don't think there's much point in worrying about it. And I try to just stay, I try to keep my mind clear, and if I have extra time, I'm going to think about my own roster. In a draft, I'm more likely to use a computer and check stats and plan out my team in more detail as we're going through because you have a lot more downtime. In an auction, I don't want to miss out on players. I'm interested in any player at a certain price, so I don't want to miss out on anyone while I'm busy checking stats on my computer. Yeah, that's a great point about the difference between uh, auctions and straight drafts is after you make your draft in a straight draft, whether you're at the turn or in the middle of a round, generally speaking, you've got five minutes, four or five, maybe even six minutes, depending on how fast or slow your competitors are working, where you have the luxury of sitting there and thinking about a lot of stuff because you know that you're not going to be active. But in an auction, you could be active 10 players in a row or not at all for 15 players in a row, and you you never quite know. And, And another thing about Tout Wars I found that was different from any other auction I've ever participated in was the pace of it. It's so fast, the way that uh, the going once, going twice is a total of four seconds. I timed one on an auction that I wasn't interested in, and our auctioneer, Jeff Erickson from Rotowire, really pushed the pace. And when the pace is going like that really quickly... Man, you don't have time to even type in names into your into your spreadsheet. I had one to start with, Fred, and after three players, I just said this ain't working, <laughs> and I closed the lid and uh, and I just started, like you said, focusing on my own team, trying to identify the guys I wanted to suit my needs uh, throughout the auction. And maybe that's a lesson for a lot of people to learn: is that you have so little time to manage so many different uh, informational balls that you're juggling that you really have to focus on the task at hand. Yeah, I mean. Anytime, you're, anytime your mind is off the actual auction because you're on your computer screen, you've opened up an opportunity for someone else to steal a player on you. And some people like to throw out those high bids on a player right away and try to freeze the room. And you throw out, you just say, you know, Jose Batista, $37, and just hope that everybody's so busy entering the last bid uh, on the last player into their spreadsheet or checking their own totals or thinking about their own team that maybe he just slips right through and you don't even have to, to fight anyone for him. So, I mean... If you, have, if you don't have your computer, then you free yourself up more. And, you know, I can steal moments during the auction with just me and my sheet and my list of my, my bids and my, and my roster so far. I can steal moments maybe someone opens up a Derek Jeter, and I just know that maybe I'm not really into Derek Jeter as much as most people this year, so I'm just going to let him go. And then I'm going to think a little bit about, you know, where am I shaping up in steals or where am I shaping up in home runs or how does my pitching staff look. But I don't want to be consistently tied into doing that on a computer in a draft, I'm going to look after each pick when I have a few minutes of free time and think, you know, how many more steals do I really feel like I need to get to the total that I'm looking for? And you also have to understand the difference between a league where you can trade, like Ted Wars, and a league where you can't, like a lot of NFBC leagues. 
if you can't trade in a league, you have to come out of the draft with a certain type of team. In tout wars, you don't have to come out of the draft with a certain type of team. You just have to come out of the draft with guys you believe in and guys that you like at the money that you paid for them. And if your team's short on power or short on speed or short on pitching or short on closers, you can make deals for that as the season goes on, but you can't make deals if your players aren't playing well. So as long as you get guys you think will play well, you can manipulate them as the season goes along. Fred, besides Tout Wars Mixed, I'm sure you play in some other leagues. Uh, do you play in other experts leagues, and do you play in a regular just guys league? I do. Uh, this year I was in the Mixed uh, Labor League, which drafted uh, late in February. And then I also do a league with uh, some industry guys and some NFBC veteran-type guys, uh, one that I do on a slow draft uh, over email uh, during the winter, Perry Van Hook uh, from Masters Ball organizes that one and does a great job with it. That's kind of my first one to get start getting a gauge on how other people feel. Uh, not in any local leagues anymore. I really like to cap my leagues at three or four in a season. I find if I get more than three or four leagues, then I really can't do a good job with each one. And uh, if I'm going to put my name on something, then I want to be sure that I'm going to give it the attention it deserves. I don't think it's fair to people in your league to to join, you know, 15 leagues and then you don't even check your team by the all-star break in some leagues or you don't respond to trade offers or things like that. So if I, I'm going to keep my inning or my league total low and try to give each one my best effort. Yeah, and not only do you owe it to yourself, but really you owe it to all the other guys in all the other leagues that you play in because if you're willing to just drop a team because it's not competitive because you want to focus on some other team, you're really not doing the, all the participants in the leagues you're ignoring any favors. Yeah, I also think that there's, I mean, one of the basic loves of fantasy baseball is having your guys that you're going to root for, that you're going to you know, follow during the season, and really getting to know how they're doing, almost like you're running a real baseball team. And once you have a portfolio of you know, 10 teams, you've got in every baseball game, you own you know, half the players playing in the game on some team. And then it gets to be almost like you're just you know, trading stocks and there's not a lot of attachment to the players. And you know, I do view, the, like I understand fantasy baseball, and we don't really have these players, and, and they are a little bit like stocks in a way. But on the other hand, I like to know, you know, I leave Tout Wars and I say, those are my guys. And I might make some trades with them, but really, these are my guys I'm going to get to really follow closely this year and really pull for. And between that and labor and one other league, you know, on any given night, you have, you know, maybe three or four pitchers starting around the majors, and you're going to keep track of those and certain hitters. But I don't like to get to the point where I feel like I have so many teams that I basically own half the major leagues on any given night. So I, I think it's better to you know, really take a team and work with them and enjoy it because that is what fantasy baseball started with, kind of simulating what the real GMs do. Yeah, it's f more fun when you have fewer players because you can focus in on them. Yoannis Cespedes hit a home run in Japan yesterday, and he's on my Tout Wars team, and I was real happy about that. And it would have been different if I, at the same time, had the pitcher on some other draft and maybe some other guy had Cespedes in a 15th draft. You know, it's just more fun this way. Uh Fred, before we let you go, we always ask our experts to pick a sleeper or two, and I don't know if all your drafting's done for the year, and I hope you're not giving anything away, but uh, who do you like this year as, a, as an undervalued player from your projections? Uh, I think uh, Alejandro Diaz on the White Sox has been a really underrated guy. You know, I've ended up with him in almost every draft. I think he's underrated. I think he's going to hit leadoff for them and steal you know, in the range of 20, 23, 25 bases and, and hit for average. I think he's a, you know, a late bloomer if people are overlooking um, I think Michael Kadire is going to have a good year for people in shallow leagues. Kind of, he's going to have a good year in Colorado. I think Martin Prado is going to bounce back nicely in Atlanta. I've owned Tom Malone from the A's. 
I think in basically the last round of every mixed league draft I've done so far, uh, a fly ball pitcher with pretty good control who I think will fare pretty well in Oakland. And sometimes I like to just count on GMs and their track record. The A's develop pitchers well, and they choose pitchers well. They picked Tom Malone in that offseason trade. They think he's going to fit in well for them. I think he's going to fit in well for them. So I think he's a guy in an AL only league. I would, if I was in one, which I'm not this year, I would have definitely targeted him for a couple of dollars late. I think he could do okay as a rookie there. Fred, thanks very much for doing this. We're going to have to have you back during the year so you can tell us about how your tow or is managing is doing. Yeah, absolutely. This was fun. Anytime. That's Fred Zinke, the reigning champion of the Tout Wars Mixed League. Our regular commentaries come up next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. And this crowd just straining forward at every pitch. Here it comes. A swing of this. Two strikes, ball one to Dale Mitchell. Listen to this crowd. I'm guaranteed that nobody, but nobody has left this ballpark. And if somebody did manage to leave early, man, he's... Missing the greatest. Two strikes and a ball. Mitchell waiting. Stands deep. Feet close together. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. A no hitter. A perfect game for John Larson. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with his market pulse. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is in the hole with Master Notes and leading off the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon talking this week about Tigers pitching prospect Drew Smiley. The Detroit Tigers' Drew Smiley doesn't get much attention, but that could change if he is named the team's fifth starter to begin the season. The 22-year-old lefty was a second-round pick in 2010 after a successful collegiate career at the University of Arkansas. At 6'3", 190 pounds, Smiley has a solid pitcher's frame, but really lacks an overpowering fastball. His fastball sits in the 88-92 to 92 range, and he complements it with a curve, a slider, a cutter, and a changeup. None of his offerings grade out as plus, but Smiley does have an advanced feel for pitching and sets up hitters very well. In his professional debut in 2011, Smiley was 11-6 with an impressive 2.07 ERA. He walked just 36 while striking out 130 in 126 innings. He also limited opposing hitters to a 227 batting average against and gave up only two home runs all year. A prototypical finesse lefty, Smiley has had a solid spring and should be able to edge out Dwayne Belo for the last spot in the Tigers' rotation. In four spring appearances, Smiley has a 2.84 ERA and has given up just seven hits in 12 innings. If Drew Smiley is able to secure the fifth starter role next week, he is definitely worth an endgame bid in AL-only leagues as the Tigers seem poised to defend their American League Central title. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All this spring, Rob Gordon has been bringing organizational reports and scouting columns, and Jeremy Deloney has been reporting on the top prospects. This week, Rob has a minor league draft grid, an invaluable tool for drafting, and in season they have prospect updates, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and pretty much everything you need to keep tabs on the rising stars. So if you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. 
Now the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about bringing your football friends into fantasy baseball with a points head-to-head league. Think it's too late to get your fantasy football friends to join a baseball league? We know the excuses. There's too much time. I can't fill around with lineups. Here's a basic format that can get your football friends into baseball as well. First of all, make sure that you have everybody active. You might want to have a disabled list if someone gets hurt but have all your players active. With everyone active, it eliminates that constant lineup meddling that some of us love, but your football friends may hate. Next, limit the amount of transactions available each year. Maybe make it 12 transactions or 15, so that they know that someone can't come in and work this league by just working the waiver wire to win it, that it's really who you draft and who you watch, but you do have an ability to replace injured players. Finally, have a simple points format. The points format will reflect actual football. Basically do one point for each total base, run scored, RBI, and stolen base. Similarly, for pitchers, do 15 points for wins, 7 for saves, and 1 for strikeout. That way, when your friends watch the game and their pitcher gets a strikeout, they just scored a point. The hitter hits a home run. That's 6 points. 4 total bases, a run, and an RBI. It gives a nice immediate feedback when they're watching the game, just like they're watching a football game. This format works very well for experts, too. One of my favorite leagues is a points league because I get that immediate satisfaction. I watch those players very closely, and instead of trying to wonder how much that helps me in a certain category, I get the immediate feedback of scoring points. This week on Market Pulse on BaseballHQ.com, we do our points tiers. So we look at pitchers and hitters and tier them in different value levels. Playing time is certainly one of the keys in a points format, and also you want players with upside, lots of power, good chance for wins, and strikeouts, something you can predict even more than wins. So there's certain things you need to know when you're working a points format to ensure success. To make it more like football, you could do a weekly head-to-head format, or two weeks if you'd like, so that each player gets to play another player and gets that satisfaction of a win or a loss. Finally, keep the stakes low. People are more likely to participate in a league where there's not a lot of money at stake, just pride. So if you keep the stakes low, you can get more people into your league, get them following baseball, and then develop your league each year as people get more and more into it. The key is to get people to try it, to like it, and then you can refine the league each year as it grows. With the Market Pulse for Baseball HQ and HQ Radio, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. As you heard, his column this week at the site, Using Tears in Point Leagues. Now, Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about those volatile bullpens. My, how things change in just a few short months. Back at First Pitch Arizona, the XFL Experts League held its annual first stage auction. This is a 15-team mixed keeper league with 40-man rosters. We stock our active rosters at that November event and then hold a 17-player reserve draft in March. That reserve draft was held this past week. I came out of the auction with a solid bullpen tandem that cost me a total of $18, $12 for Craig Kimbrell, and $6 for um, Ryan Matson. Hmm... Needless to say, last weekend's news that Madsen would be undergoing Tommy John surgery came as a blow. It would force me to use my precious first-round reserve pick on a replacement. Never an easy task. But this year is different. 
Between that early November draft and now, there are no fewer than eight new front-line closers from which to choose. It's a veritable bounty of potential saves. It's a 27% turnover of bullpen aces during the course of four months in which there have been no games played. It starts with the two recent injury losses, Matson and Joachim Soria. As of today, it's still unclear exactly who their replacements are going to be. Sean Marshall seems to be a shoo-in in Cincinnati, but they're not committing yet. It could be Jonathan Broxton or Greg Holland in KC. I bet on Holland in Tout Wars. All went undrafted in the XFL. Matt Thornton does a possible new closer after the trade of Sergio Santos to Toronto, but the White Sox are not committing yet either. Jesse Crane and Addison Reed are still in the mix. Frank Francisco was buried in Toronto and is now the frontliner with the Mets. All went undrafted in the XFL. The trade of Joe Nathan to Texas freed up Matt Capps to reclaim the job in Minnesota. Brett Myers was surprisingly pulled from the Houston rotation to claim his first closing role in five years. And Raphael Betancourt defied common wisdom and was named the Rockies' closer outright. Again, all were unclaimed in the XFL and available to draft this week. But that's not all. With the uncertainty of even some frontliners, there were other closer candidates worth pursuing. Available were Vinny Pestano, Glenn Perkins, and Faltino De Los Santos. There was still Brandon Lyon, Brian Fuentes, and Kevin Gregg. Rex Brothers, Kelvin Herrera, and Steve Syshek. There were old standby setup men who could easily move into the closers role, like Sergio Romo, Joaquin Benoit, Tyler Clippard, and Rafael Soriano. There was Octavio Dotel, and even Brad Lidge and Kerry Wood. And all were available in a 15-team draft after the initial 345 players had been rostered. In a league with 40-man rosters like the XFL, most of these guys did end up being claimed. But in more standard-depth leagues, many of them will likely start the season in the free agent pool, which means that saves will be available in April, May, and beyond as the frontliners get hurt or flame out. So you don't have to pay full price for multiple closers at the draft table. The 33% failure rate over the past decade should remind you of that. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler writes a weekly Fanalytics column every Friday at BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about his review of his 2012 Tout Wars draft, titled The Punt. Ron discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com and has a weekly chat every Wednesday at USAToday.com. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also has his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of March the 31st, show number 11 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to Baseball HQ Radio. Of course, we always invite you to tell your friends about the show and take a second to go over to iTunes and give us five stars. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Glenn Colton and Fred Zinke, champions in experts leagues. Always good to hear from those experienced players. Also, thanks to our regular lineup from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, our Market Watch news analyst Harold Nichols and columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week, our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon, and our Master Notes commentator 
BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Be sure to check out Josh Weller's research analysis of endowment effects and roster management. Alex Becky has an article about getting a strong start in head-to-head leagues. And Doug Dennis has his spring training wrap-up for bullpens. And as you heard from Ron Chandler, this is an important time of year to be thinking about those bullpens are very volatile. Plus, we'll have all our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide appears every Tuesday at the BaseballHQ.com site, and I have a Roto Strategy essay about lessons from labor and tout wars on the site right now. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. You can also check out BaseballHQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is available as a free podcast through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com slash radio, where we have a complete archive of past editions as well. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the individuals speaking and not necessarily those of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.